Hey guys, welcome to episode 110 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope everything is well with all of you guys. And we're excited to bring you another episode. If you follow us on Instagram, you definitely already know this. But recently we were interviewed by a podcast called The Pink Lemonade Stand. So if you want to check us out there, you can do that. That would be awesome. Nicole and Heidi were so amazing to talk to. And we thank them so much for featuring us. It was our first ever episode, so we were very nervous. Yeah, it was the first time that we were ever interviewed before, so you could, you can uh, definitely tell that we were uh, nervous. Yes, definitely <laughs> a little rusty on our interviewing skills. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but before we begin, we just want to mention something really exciting. I know it's August, but fall is just around the corner. I know you know that already because... I'm sure you see pumpkin spice things all over the place. Every single location, everywhere. (laughs) Um, So we just kind of want to start getting the word out a little bit early for our Halloween episode. That's the episode where we feature listener stories, whether it's like a ghost or paranormal story or something even um, true crime related. But honestly, last year's episode scared me so badly. So it's going to be really hard to top them, but I think that we could do it, guys. I think we can. Now, if your story is featured, we will send you an Amazon gift card. So let those creepy stories roll in. You can send them to us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And I, what I do is I just like star all of the scary stories that come in. We've actually surprisingly had um, three stories come in already. So I put a little star on them and I pick a night to read them and terrify myself. So I will get back to every story that gets sent in, I promise you. Well, I feel like last episode I gave you the whole rate, review, follow us, tell people spiel last time. So you want to just get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. In today's case, we're going to discuss a strong woman from Nuego County, Michigan. She had a very difficult childhood, which led her down a dangerous road. However, when she got pregnant at 17, she chose to start making the right choices in her life. Months after the birth of her daughter, she was brutally raped. When she went to the police to report this story, it resulted in a good investigation and the arrest of her attacker. But the trial would never happen because of the mayhem that would ensue after the charges were filed. Nuego County investigators went from investigating a rape to being on the hunt for a serial killer. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Rachel Helena Timmerman's life story was an anomaly a very strong exception to the rule. She was born on April 6, 1978, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Many thought that Rachel was destined to fall victim to her surroundings. Her parents had separated. Her, her sister, and brother learned to fend for themselves at an early age because of this. Her mother was, to put this as nicely as possible, neglectful to her two daughters and son. She did not provide well for them, 
and they often went without proper food or clothing. The neglect was not just physical and financial, but emotional and educational as well. Rachel was not made to go to school, and it just wasn't something that was a priority in her young life. And this is something that we see sometimes in school. Uh, Missing school means a lack of skills, sometimes which perpetuates a student's aversion to school. And sometimes low-income students are apprehensive to come to school for reasons like not having clean clothes or having lunch. And the mind of a neglected child or teenager is really not that hard to understand. I mean, if you look back to the times that you were in school, um, think about how easily you got embarrassed over the silliest things or how nervous you were about what people thought of you. Now imagine that you didn't have clean clothes or any money to buy lunch or even to bring lunch to school, right? So the nervousness that your peers are going to make fun of you, how you look, how you smell, it's very sad and it really does account for a lot of absences in schools with lower income students. So this is something that Rachel had issues with growing up her whole life. That's really sad. I mean, these are, we're talking about like basic human needs, right? So like the fact that they can't go to school without feeling the pressures of something that should be given as a basic, you know, thing, you know, that's really sad. As Rachel entered her teen years, she began to act out. She attended less and less school and was getting very heavy into drugs and alcohol. It was her way to escape it all. Because she was missing so much school, and because of her involvement in illegal activities, the state of Michigan appointed her a social worker at the age of 13. From then until she was 17 years old, her social worker tried very hard to make sure that Rachel went to school and that she had emotional support and she was trying to better her life. But those weren't Rachel's plans. She liked her social worker and appreciated all the time and effort that she put into her and their relationship, but at that point, she could care less about school, and she really just wanted to spend time partying. But her fast-paced lifestyle came to a halt in September of 1995. She was pregnant. At 17 years old, she was going to be a mother. Her instincts kicked in almost immediately. Even before she was able to find out if she was having a boy or a girl, she made the decision to turn her life around. She stopped drinking and doing drugs. She wanted a better life for her children than the one she had herself. It takes a lot of courage to end cycles of abuse, so we really do have to applaud her dedication in wanting more for her child than she had for herself and for trying to give a kind of love that she never received. And that's what I meant by saying that, you know, people expected her to follow the same path as her own mother, but she chose to end that cycle of abuse that was taking place, which is a very courageous and selfless thing to do. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think that when when you're in a situation like she is, I mean, right away, everyone around her would probably think that she'll just repeat the cycle, but to break that is so much her you know harder to deal with 100 percent. you know but that's the goal i think that anyone that's ever had a child always wants to do better uh for them you know maybe something that they didn't have and they want to do the same you know make sure that they have that 
So. Well, I think that they should feel that way, but unfortunately not every parent does. So. Yeah. Unfortunately. It's good that it was happening here in this situation. So Rachel gave birth to her daughter, whom she named Shannon Dale, on June 15th, 1996. She was a beautiful baby with little tufts of blonde hair and large blue eyes. She was also a wonderfully happy and good-natured baby. Rachel was so happy to care for her daughter, always being a good mother and always putting her first. She wanted Shannon to be able to look up to her, unlike the feelings that she had about her own mother. But let's be honest, being a mother to a newborn is a very difficult thing. And Rachel had, after all, just turned 18 years old. So on the night of August 6, 1996, about two months after the birth of Shannon, Rachel was given the opportunity to get out of the house for the night. She was really excited to have a break while her sister and brother were going to watch Shannon. She was going to go out with a very close family friend, a man by the name of Wayne Davis. Davis had planned to spend the night playing cards and drinking with his friend Marvin Gabrion. Gabrion's nephew, a former classmate of Rachel's named Mike, was going to be there too, which was why Davis had invited her along. You know, she was friendly with Mike, and it would be nice for her to, like, get out of the house. So that's basically what he was trying to do. You need a break sometimes, you know? Yeah, no, you do. feel like you go crazy taking care of a baby for so long. You know, you need some, like, adult human interaction, and I think that's what she was in search of that night. Seriously, you need some air. Yes. (laughs) So at some point during the night, while the four companions were driving together, they were actually driving home from this night of playing cards. Marvin, uh, Gabrion, the friend of Wayne Davis, and the only of the three men that Rachel did not know, pulled the car over while they were kind of on a back road. He forced Davis and his nephew Mike to get out of the car, but made Rachel stay inside. The men, both scared of Gabrion for their own reasons, which we never truly find out completely, comply with his request. He then drove Rachel to a remote location. Terrified, Rachel begged for him not to hurt her. When he pulled over, he told Rachel to get out of the car. She knew that there was no one around and no one could help her. She had an idea that Gabrion was going to rape her. Now we have to think at this point, this poor girl had just given birth seven weeks prior. So she was still healing to a degree. And, you know, because it does take like, we think, I believe it's six weeks for you to even be able to have sex again after you, not saying that this is sex whatsoever, but you can't even have sex until six weeks after you give birth. Most, mostly. I mean, I'm sure it changes with every case, but that's like the average. So this is only seven weeks after she's given birth. She's probably still in pain. Wow. Okay. So she tried to fight Gabriel off when he approached her, but she was no match for him. He beat her and raped her repeatedly. During the attacks, he hit her head repeatedly against the hard gravel ground and bit her nose hard enough to break off a piece of skin. Oh my God, what an animal. Yeah. When the brutality was over, Gabriel had Rachel get back into his car. He drove her back to the trailer that she lived in with her mother and sister. 
Rachel, having had been beaten and raped, sat in the front seat of the car distraught. When she saw the trailer and knew she was so close to safety, she must have said or done something to elicit a violent response from Gabrion, because the next part of our story picks up with Rachel's sister, Sarah. Sarah had been the one that Rachel entrusted to watch Shannon. She had gotten her niece down to sleep, but was awoken late in the night by screaming, crying, and banging. She ran into the living room area of the trailer and found her sister facing the front door. She was hysterical. Her face was bleeding from a deep cut on her nose, and her clothes were filthy. Waking from her sleep, Sarah slowly realized that her sister had a hammer clutched in her hand. Before she could ask why she had it, she understood why. A man yelled from the other side of the door. He was angry and banging. He screamed that Rachel was going to pay for what she did. But looking at her sister, Sarah thought whatever she must have done was not worse than what he had done to her. Rachel yelled back at Gabriel, telling him to leave. He refused. And for several more minutes, he pounded at the door, while the two girls sat terrified, both clutching the hammer. Eventually, Gabrion left. When the whole ordeal was over, Sarah tried to ask her sister what had happened, but she was hysterical. She couldn't stop sobbing long enough to explain anything. Sarah asked if she wanted her to call the police. But Rachel was adamant that she didn't want the police to get involved. So Sarah and Rachel called the two people that they were always able to rely on, their brother and Rachel's social worker. When the two arrived, they were both shocked at the sight of Rachel. She was disheveled, dirty, and bleeding profusely from her face. They could tell that she was in tremendous physical pain. She was apprehensive about telling them what had happened, but finally they convinced her that she needed to. Rachel told them about what Marvin Gabrion had done to her. She then told them that she was terrified. He had said that if she told anyone what happened, he was going to kill her and Shannon. And after seeing his temper that night, during the attack and after, Rachel was pretty sure that he would make good on that promise. So she was telling them what happened, but I, and you know, this is unfortunately something that happens with a lot of rape victims is that they don't want to come forward for a few reasons. Um, Some of them being fear, right? Fear that there's going to be retribution for filing charges, Um, especially when he's threatening to murder her and her newborn baby, but also, you know, the, the shame of it. And unfortunately, shame is linked with sexual assault, which it shouldn't be, but it is. So they're trying to convince her. Maybe it is a good idea to get the police involved, especially if he is threatening you, because, you know, what's the what's to stop him from just doing this again? I mean, yeah, obviously, and he knows where she lives, which is another, like, kind of strike, too. Like, it's one thing to be threatened, and and obviously she's been tortured and raped at this point and beaten. I mean, it's it's like a perfect storm here of, like, what could happen moving forward. So, yeah, I mean, I would absolutely 
get the police involved. But this, the worst part about this whole thing so far up to this point is that I have a feeling that if there wasn't the sister um, there at that time, who's to say that she would have done anything, you know, moving forward? You know, maybe she wouldn't have gotten the police involved. That's very true. You know, so un- unfortunately, she had to have an audience of her, you know, meaning her, you know, her sister there and having the brother and the social worker involved for this to even get to the next point. Right. So it's sad that that even that that has to take place and other people need to see her in such bad shape for them to move forward and be like, hey, look, it's a good idea to get the police involved. I know what you're saying, because if she was alone, she might just never tell anybody. Right, which is, I think, happens a lot. Yeah, that's sad. So it took some time, but eventually Rachel's friends and family were able to convince her that the best thing for her to do was to go to the police. Gabrion was violent and unpredictable, and she needed protection. She filed a police report with the Nuevo County Sheriff's Department. It was also very brave of Rachel to move forward with these charges against the man that had attacked her and was threatening her. As a sad aside, her social worker said um, later in interviews that unfortunately, because of her past, um, Rachel really didn't value herself or think that she mattered. And, you know, this is a sad side effect to the pain and neglect that she had already felt in her short lifespan she didn't think that it mattered that she was attacked um she said to her social worker that she wanted to come forward because she didn't want gabriel to do this to another woman like she valued a stranger that she didn't even know yet over her own self which is it's sad and sometimes i feel like men like this predators they they find these women, they have this um, sixth sense about them where they can spot a victim that doesn't value herself for whatever reasons um, from her past. And that's who they choose to attack and to victimize because they know that they're less likely to come forward, which is sad. And this is another instance of Rachel again breaking a cycle. Yeah, you're right. And it's actually very, um, it's interesting because this, what you're bringing up now is a good example of it. Another one would be like where serial killers will choose to uh, target uh, whether it's women of color or prostitutes because they're victims that no one will, well, in their eyes, no one would care about. Right. So it's a very, like, you know, it's the same thing, kind of. Yeah, the the lesser victim, right? right? That's what has been perpetuated in society because those are the victims that nobody speaks about, which is, again, unfortunate. Yeah. So once they received Rachel's report, um, the Nuevo County Sheriff's Department, which was very troubling, they wanted to speak with Gabrion as part of their investigation. Detectives were able to reach him by phone. He said that he would come in early the next morning to give his side of things. But Marvin Gabrion did not show up at the police station. Instead, he faxed over his statement. He faxed the statement over? He faxed it over. (laughs) Oh my god. Yes. Um, It's pretty crazy. So Gabrion had written a five-page account of the night of August 6th. In his fax, he stated that he... Rachel, Davis, and his nephew were at his friend's playing cards. 
They then left in his car. He had been driving. And he claimed that during the drive, Rachel had offered to perform oral sex on him. Just in the middle of a car ride. He then let Davis and Mike out of the car so he could be alone with Rachel. He said that they drove um, far down a remote road and got out of the car together. This story is so ridiculous and I like don't even want to read it, but I have to. Um, he claimed that once they got out of the car, Rachel performed oral sex on him and then took the, I can't believe I have to say this sentence. Holy shit. He, she took the semen from her mouth and put it inside her vagina. What? Yeah. I, it's, it is so ludicrous. Wait. Okay. This is what he's claiming because obviously she had gone to the hospital. So a rape kit was performed. So semen was found in her vaginal canal along with extensive tearing. So this is his excuse as to how it took place. Like how it got there. Do you realize, and I'm sure you do, like the stupidity that you wrote this down on on a piece of paper and faxed it. Or, or typed it, however, and faxed it. Like, are you embarrassed? I mean, this guy is an idiot. I think he's an idiot, but I think he's very cocky and he just thinks he's going to get away with this. And that that's something we'll learn with Gabriel is that he has been able to get away with so much shit that I think he thinks at this point, oh, I'll just say this happens and it'll become a he said, she said. But um, I don't think he, ex- he, I don't think he expected her to go forward with pressing charges and also having the rape kit performed. I mean, I guess you're right, but it also doesn't make sense that if he wants to defend himself and tell his side of it, wouldn't it just be better to be there in person than to send us a fax? Well, because I think it would have been very clear that he was lying. I, I mean, I guess. I just can't believe that that is what you put on a on piece a of fax. paper. Yeah. I mean, like, and I'm not trying to make light of this ordeal. I know. But it's like, for that to take place, I mean, that would mean that, like, what, like, that... Sh- People just walk around with some sort of like turkey baster. Listen, that's not like that's a horrific sentence that I just had to say. And I wish I could erase it from any like the history of sentences that I've said out loud. But I promise you, it's not the worst thing that I'm going to have to say this podcast. Jeez. All right. Yes. Okay. All right. So he continues to tell his story. He said that she then asked him for intercourse, but he refused. At that point, he claimed that they both got back into the car and left. Um, He has, he kind of explains the story in two ways as to how she got the injury on her nose. So Gabrion was known to always have his dog with him. He said that when they got back in the car, Rachel had accidentally sat on his dog's tail and the dog kind of nipped at her, so nipped her nose. But then as they were leaving, the car got stuck. So they had to push the car out. And while she was trying to push the car out, um, her clothes got dirty and her face hit the car, making the injury to her nose worse. He said he then drove her to her trailer where she only just then became hysterical because she realized she was hurt. Wow. What a series of unfortunate events. What a ridiculous story. Yeah. Right. And anyone could, I mean, I'm hoping that someone sees through this. I mean, nobody couldn't see through that. Uh, yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, 
The I one really thing hope. about this whole podcast is that it's going to be overwhelmingly obvious that Marvin Gabriel has done everything that has taken place. I think he thinks he's this criminal mastermind and that he can get away with so much because he has in reality. But his crimes are going to catch up with him. Okay. So luckily, Rachel Timmerman went to a hospital after her attack. And because that prevented this from becoming a he said, she said, because if a rape kit wasn't performed or um, there wouldn't be doctor's notes on the brutal attack that took place, um, it very easily could have become a he said, she said thing. But they were able to determine that she had human teeth marks on her nose. There was significant tearing and bleeding and that she suffered a severe head trauma and had bruising on her body from her head to her legs. That's evidence not, doesn't lie. Yeah, that's not something that just happens because you're getting a car out of a ditch. No, evidence doesn't lie. Now, this was the dangerous part for Rachel. She had reported the sexual assault and her attacker who threatened her life and the life of her baby, was on the loose. It would be a long five months between Rachel reporting the attack and the Nuevo County prosecutors charging Marvin Gabrion with third-degree criminal sexual conduct. This felony charge had the potential to put him in prison for 15 years. In that time, Rachel decided that she needed to implement some serious changes in her life. She moved with her daughter Shannon to her father's house because she felt safer there. She started working at a fast food restaurant near his house. Her only goal was to get her life back on track and heal from the mental, emotional, and physical trauma that she suffered, taking care of her daughter, and she even had plans to get her GED. She was on the right path, but the road was still going to be difficult because the trial was approaching. So back in Nuevo County, Gabrion was arrested on January 20th, 1997. In the warrant he was served, it listed all of the witnesses that were going to testify against him, Rachel being one of them. So it's like you're being arrested because she basically told on you. Right. Which, I mean, it has to be done for legal purposes, but it's also, you know, putting her in danger. So Gabriel was released on bail less than two weeks later on February 3rd. So he had bailed out. Someone posted this bail for him. And that someone was Wayne Davis. Now, to say these words to you hurts me more than anything. John, you, you know that. Um, but I don't know what happened here. And I love to give you every answer possible. On so many levels with this Davis guy, right? Like, I have questions. Rachel went with the men that night because Wayne Davis was supposed to be a very close family friend. So you would have thought that this Wayne Davis, the reason why she's there and a really close family friend would have been more protective of her. Like, why that night was he so quick to get out of the car? And he was listed as a witness against Gabriel, but now he's posting his bail. 
So something strange is happening here. And based on the history of Marvin Gabriel, what I think is taking place is that there's some type of manipulation and fear involved with the relationship between Marvin Gabriel and Wayne Davis. And I think Wayne Davis is scared of Marvin Gabriel, and that's why he got out of the car. I think he felt guilty about what happened, and that's why he was going to testify against him. But then Gabriel got in touch with him, and he was scared again. So to make up for it, he posted his bail. That's what I I thinking took place. Do you think there might be some sort of like blackmail involved? Maybe he knows something that no one else does. Listen, knowing Gabriel, I don't put that past him. And I don't, I don't know, it could just be him threatening him. I mean, this is a very, very violent man. And if Wayne Davis is friendly with him, he knows about his violence. So I think he knows that any threat that Gabriel gives him is a real threat. Okay. So after hearing about Gabriel's release, Rachel unfortunately had a relapse and began using drugs again. She had been caught with these drugs and was arrested. Now, she was still on probation for other possession charges that she had been arrested for before the um, pregnancy with, with Shannon. So she did have to spend some time in jail. Okay. Shortly after Gabrion's release from jail, Wayne Davis was scheduled to appear in court on February 13th for a driving under the influence charge. So totally unrelated, Wayne Davis had been pulled over. Um, He was found to be under the influence, and now he had a court date based on that charge. Okay? All right. He had expected that this appearance would lead to him spending some time in prison because it wasn't his first. So he asked his friend, a woman named Darlene Lazo, to drive him to court that day. He had mentioned to her that before they went to the courthouse, He wanted to stop and buy some puzzle books and cigarettes because he knew he was going to need something to occupy his time during the 90 days he would likely have to spend in county jail. Puzzle books, huh? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to just like bring in a puzzle book. I I mean, I'm I'm sure I I would imagine anything that you can get in like a commissary, I guess you could bring with you. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I think it's good that we don't know how that works. Yeah. I mean, I would love to inform my listeners, but I have no idea about the jail system. Well, if he was going to buy it, he might have been able to. Okay. So on the morning of this hearing, Lazo went to pick up her friend, but Wayne Davis did not come out to her car. So she went to the door and rang the bell, but there was no response. After waiting a while, she went to a payphone and tried to call his house phone. But again, no response. So she went back to his house several times and just that day alone, she went back several times. He never answered the door. She then tried to check spots that she knew he liked to hang out at. He wasn't there. He was nowhere to be found. Two days later, she went back to check in on him, thinking his disappearance was odd. And on the door, she found a note that was signed by Wayne Davis. The note stated that Davis had left for California because he was scared he would be sent to jail. Oh, my God. Now, Lazo thought this was weird, right? I mean, this is also bullshit because she knew he wasn't scared to serve the 90-day sentence in county jail. In fact, it was something that he expected to do and had planned for. 
so she forced her way inside of the house. She said things had been left in his house that he most certainly would not have left behind. One of those items being a jacket that he had from his time in the army. Okay, wow. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't leave that behind. That's odd. So Lazo thought this was all very suspicious because the day before she was supposed to pick up her friend for his court appearance, she knew that he had been hanging out with Marvin Gabrion because she had seen the two of them together. Uh-oh. Yeah. So Wayne Davis was now missing. And well, the entire situation surrounding Davis and his connection with Gabrion was really bizarre. But for most, they felt that the nail in the coffin regarding the situation and the connection between the two and Gabrion being responsible for it was the fact that two weeks after his disappearance, Marvin Gabrion put Wayne Davis's stereo equipment and microwaves up for sale at a consignment shop in Macosta, Michigan. So he's just selling his stuff? Yeah. Uh, okay. So either he said to do it, or something a little bit more darker is taking place here. Correct. Okay. Now, um, this is something that I'm not saying the police didn't investigate the disappearance of Wayne Davis. They did really want to find him because obviously it looks like he had totally not shown up for a court appearance that he needed to be there for. But they also knew that he left the note. Maybe he's he's a little bit transient. He was trying to escape jail time. So they look into it, but they don't really look into it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's not a priority investigation. So now the disappearance of Davis was not good for the prosecutors working the case against Gabrion for the rape of Rachel. He was going to be a really important witness. He was going to explain that when he and Mike were kicked out of the car, Rachel appeared to be nervous and he never heard her say that she wanted to give him oral sex. But the disappearance of one of their witnesses was the least of their worries. From February to May of 1997, they were making little progress. Gabrion, in an attempt to prolong the wait for his trial, changed attorneys several times. So that is going to obviously prolong the time between, you know, each time he gets new counsel, they need time to look over all of the files so it keeps getting pushed back but finally a date was set for june 5th of 1997 okay good i mean at least he can't keep prolonging it i mean he has to be this has to go down right so rachel had been released from her jail sentence for possession in the beginning of may she expressed to several people that she was terrified that gabrion was going to kill her especially after she heard about the disappearance of Wayne Davis. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Go for I, it. I have a quick question for you before you continue. Go for it. Let me get this straight. So Gabriel is out on bail, right? Correct. For this whole entire time. Yes. So she really does have a real concern that he might come and try to kill her. Yes. Because Every, he yeah. is out on bail. Right. And clearly, I mean, this is something that is very obvious to everyone he isn't really shying away from hanging out with people that are supposed to be testifying during the trial. They disappear. 
he's selling their stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this fear is valid. I think it's a little weird. Uh, I, I just want to also point this out. Wouldn't he be considered a flight risk? No, because he didn't have the means to, to be traveling. I see what you're also, saying. Also, it's, it's, it's dependent on the crime that he's going to be facing. So he was allowed to make bail because Wayne Davis posted it for him. But him hanging out with witnesses that would be helping his behalf, wouldn't that be like some sort of witness tampering if yes. he's hanging out with them? I they mean, are you, definitely not supposed to be hanging out. They post bail. He's out. And now he's just hanging out with the witnesses that are going to help him possibly sway a jury to not convict him. So in a way, that's like witness tampering. Well, this would be like a judge trial. Oh, judge trial. Yes. Okay. Um, I do think that there's a lot of weird things going on with this case that would make it a very difficult thing for the prosecutors to work on, which they were having so much time. They were having so much trouble with this case and it was making them feel exasperated. And that is the intention of Gabriel the whole time. Yeah. Wow. Now, Rachel's fears were real because on two separate occasions, she called the sheriff's office to report that she had seen Gabriel and was worried that he was going to make good on his promise to kill her. So he is stalking her. Right. Now, how is that fair for the victim here? You have someone that has been brutally raped and beaten. You're putting it through all this hell. And, and, you know, where is, like, the protection for for this woman? Like, it's not fair. Well, unfortunately, this is why a lot of victims do not come forward because of the these things that they have to deal with afterwards. And I think that this is 1997. I believe... As a society and within our justice system, we've come a long way in protecting victims and dealing with these sensitive topics and and situations like this. But again, what can they do? They could put a squad car. He was always within the like bounds of this protective order against him. I know. I'm just saying, like, I guess they could put like a squad car out in front of her house. Yeah. You know, maybe something. I mean, I'm sure they could spare one person, at least until the trial, until until they actually physically go to trial. I mean, I don't think that would be that like that crazy to ask. I think that that's something that they maybe should have considered in this case, 110%. I, I mean, because I look you. at it this way. It's 1997. It isn't the dark ages. We're not... Right. You know what I mean? It's not that far off. So, like, I would think that mm-hmm. that would be something that you would do. You put a sheriff's deputy outside right. of the home so she feels at least safe to go to sleep and don't forget i mean at this point rachel had already had a relapse because of you know i'm sure the many stresses that are going on in her life so she was just working with her attorneys working hard not to let her emotions get the best of her and potentially go through another relapse she was focused solely on her job and taking care of shannon she had been receiving phone calls from a man named john weeks and he seemed really nice and respectful. So it seemed like, okay, she had also met a nice guy. Like, her life was going in a good direction. She just had to get this trial behind her. Okay, that's good. Now, John Weeks had gotten her number from someone that she knew and he knew. He had kind of seen her working at the fast food restaurant. So the two began to talk on the phone. And they talked on the phone all of the time. 
and she really started to like him. In the days leading up to the trial, Rachel's anxieties were high. So while talking on the phone with her new boyfriend, he suggested that she get out of her father's house for a while and go out with him. Rachel had wanted to see him, but had no one to watch her daughter. So he suggested that Rachel bring 11-month Shannon along for their date. He had been excited to meet her. So she got herself ready and told her family that she was going out to meet John, that he was going to come pick her up. And this was on June 3rd, two days before the trial was supposed to begin. So Rachel never came home from her date with John Weeks. And the next day, her father received a letter. It had been written in Rachel's handwriting. In it, she apologized for leaving without saying goodbye but she chose to run off and get married. She explained that when she finally had an address for him to write to, that she would send another letter. Now, her father knew that she had been nervous about testifying, and his daughter was extremely impulsive. But he did think that it was a possibility that, you know, like she met this new guy, he seemed to be good for her, and she just wanted to escape everything, especially with the trial. So he didn't see it outside the realm of possibility, but he did think it was strange. I mean, it is strange to uproot everything you know, and also you're leaving with your kid. You know, it's not just you know a missing woman; it's a missing woman and her kid, eleven month old baby. Yeah, right. So I think that's a little bit more. I think to me that's what makes it a little odd to just uproot with your child. Right. So that's especially because she did have a really good support system in Michigan where she was living. I also think it's odd that she wouldn't just say goodbye to them. Yeah, it's bizarre. And then also, I'm sure she probably wanted to testify and be a witness in that trial. I'm sure she would. Yeah. You know, just to seek the justice that she deserves. Well, just to put him away because she was scared for her safety. Exactly. So when the detectives working Rachel's case came to talk to her father after he reported to the prosecutor that his daughter was no longer going to be able to testify because she had essentially run away, they started asking questions about the note that was left, um, who came to pick her up. They just they had a lot of questions. Rachel's family told the detective that they did see a man come to pick her up. And they said that although the man never got out of the car, it was very clear that this was a young man and it was in no way Marvin Gabrion. Because, of course, that had been the initial fears of the detectives. The June 5th trial of Marvin Gabrion came and went. Prosecutors asked the judge to postpone the trial because they were missing the woman that was accusing the defendant of sexual assault. The judge did allow postponement, but just days after that was done, a letter arrived in the mail for the prosecutors and the judge. In the letters, which were written also in Rachel's handwriting, she stated that Marvin Gabrion had not raped her. She explained that she had just been mad that he didn't want to have sex with her, so she wanted to teach him a lesson. Okay. It all goes back to the facts. Yep. Goes, all goes back to the facts. No, no, no. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I should. Oh, do you mean like facts? Facts? Like, like the facts machine. That's what I said. 
Okay, okay. Just want to make sure. It's a nice plan where it's there, though. <laughs> it was. Um, because I, could, I have a feeling that this was a concocted plan for her to be taken. Write this letter that went to both the prosecutor and the judge. Right. And then whatever happens to her, happened to her. This is what I'm getting from this right now, yes. I think. And that's exactly how this case is. Like I said in the beginning, overwhelming. Like, this is not a whodunit. This is a... Holy shit, Marvin Gabrion is a monster case. Yeah. It is clear. I mean, I don't think he realizes how transparent all of this is, but it is. Um, in this letter, Rachel, in quotes, went on to reveal that she couldn't bear the thought of locking up an innocent man. She only wanted to scare him. So she asked if all the charges could be dropped. And she said that she had moved out of the area and just wanted to move on from this situation. Very interesting. Yes. I'm sure that has never happened to prosecutors or a judge before. So detectives were able to determine that both letters were postmarked from Arkansas. But there was something interesting about the letters. They were put in envelopes that had pre-printed holographic stamps on them. And nothing else was able to be determined from the letter. Um, there was just confirmation that it was Rachel's handwriting. The judge was forced to make a decision. The detectives couldn't find Rachel anywhere. So they were forced to drop the charges against Marvin Gabrion. I mean, I guess that's true. I mean, if you have you have no eyewitness eyewitness people because they're also missing, you have your star witness to put this dude away, and now you don't have it. So right. yeah, I mean, what else? What else can you really do here? Yeah, I think that at this point, um, they knew that there was something bigger going on here, so they were like, "Let's drop these charges. We've got bigger fish to fry with this guy." Basically. Right. I mean, because I mean, the next thing to do would be to try to investigate the whereabouts of of her, her child and also maybe the first guy, too. Like, where's the other guy? Where's Wayne Davis? Yeah. Where's Wayne Davis? So, like, you know, let's find somebody here. Yep. Well, about one week later, Rachel's family received a second letter on June 14th. One day before what would have been Shannon's first year birthday. In her letter, she explained that the man she ran away with was named Dilbert. That's weird. What happened to John Weeks? Yeah. Okay. Um, she said that this man had gotten a job in Arkansas and she was considering living out there forever. And, you know, this is all really strange. So this is where I'm going to introduce another player into this story. A woman named Kim Verhaeg. And Kim is the paternal grandmother of baby Shannon. So Shannon's father, Rick, was Rachel's ex-boyfriend. And Rick lived in Florida, but Kim was very active in her granddaughter's life. Actually, um, for two kids getting pregnant at 17, it was actually a really supportive situation because Rachel's father and sister were really super supportive and Rick's family was also really supportive and stayed in close contact and had good relationships with Rachel. So there really was a lot of love and support here. That's really nice. Yes. Well, Kim thought this was all a lie. 
She didn't believe that Rachel would just leave and get married. And she definitely didn't believe that she would relocate with the baby without letting her or her son know. Right. Also, don't forget that her son Rick was paying child support. So what now all of a sudden she doesn't need this. So it was just very bizarre. Right. Because, I mean, if you move, I mean, where you need to know where the child support goes. Right. I mean, I feel like that's even like a legal that's matter. That's a very too. basic yeah, yeah thing. So she even thought the letters were off. Definitely not in her character to send letters to her family like that. And to a judge and a prosecutor. Just very bizarre. So she thought the whole situation needed to be looked into. Like she was demanding an investigation because no letter was sent to Rick. And Rick would have most definitely received a letter if this were like true. But Kim would not have to wait long for answers. One month after Rachel left for her date, a call came in to the sheriff's station. A body had been found. Douglas Sorter had gone fishing on Oxford Lake, which is also in Nuego County. In his news interview, he stated that he and his son-in-law often frequented the spot. He would say that it was more like a mud hole in the middle of the woods than a lake but it was good for fishing. So while they were in their boat, they saw something unusual floating in the water. They saw a cement block next to an object, an object that they thought was a shooting dummy at first, you know, like those 3d rubber silhouettes for target practice. Yeah. That's what they thought it was. So he told his son-in-law that they should get closer because he had an off feeling about the whole thing. They paddle a little closer and the smell hit them. As soon as that happened, they knew what they were looking at. Douglas Sorter thought fast. They were alone in a remote area and they had just found a dead body. They had not gotten close enough to see how decayed it was. Um, it was also wrapped in a lot of um, debris from the lake So he was unsure if the killer or the person who dumped the body could still be around. So he made the choice to get in his truck with his son-in-law as quickly as possible, head back to their cabin, and from there they called the sheriff to let them know what they had found. So the sheriff's department and the Michigan State Police were called in to investigate the body in the lake. There was duct tape wrapped around the eyes and face of the body. And like I said before, there was a lot of debris from the lake that had to be carefully removed from the body. And the extraction itself from the lake was very difficult because the body at that point was so swollen and decayed from being in the lake and being in water for that long. It took hours of work, but the medical examiner was finally able to get fingerprints from the body. The Emmy was also able to determine that this was an adult female that had had a C-section and surgeries performed on her hips. She could be as old as 50. Upon extraction, she had her hands cuffed behind her back and again, her eyes and mouth had been duct taped. Her body had been chained to 63 pounds of concrete blocks. The blocks themselves were distinctive because they had red paint on them. 
Finally, the medical examiner was able to determine that she had been thrown in the lake in that position alive. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And she was, oh my God. So they threw the blocks of cement. Oh, oh my God. That's terrifying. Yeah, and you couldn't see anything and there was duct tape over your mouth. Oh my God. That's a tragic, terrifying death. That is. Um, It seems like whoever's doing this stuff seems to be very organized. And it has to come from... Oh, what's his name again? Um, Gabriel. Gabriel, thank you. Gabriel must must have some sort of connection here. I don't think this is like intimidation, fear... There has to be, like, he has to know someone that's willing to perform a hit on someone. So you think that there's other people involved, not just him? I, I, yeah, it might be, just because, I mean, I, I mean, maybe it's him. But, I mean, I don't think you would jeopardize um, yourself. Like, you wouldn't put yourself out there to commit those acts. Because right? it would be so obvious. It would be so you. obvious that it would, right, exactly. Right, You're on trial for... You know, for rape and everything else, you're not yeah. going to want anything. More. You don't want more heat on you. He has someone helping him here, I think, who okay. I have no idea. Well, Rachel's family had heard about the body discovery, and they thought that this could possibly be Rachel. Really, at this point, the detectives thought that it had to be someone older because of the hip surgeries. But Rachel's family let them know that when she was 13, she had had two hip surgeries, something obviously that's more commonplace in older people, but she needed them. Oh, wow. Rachel also had a C-section when she gave birth to Shannon, so that's why they thought it was her. And after some DNA testing, um, they were able to prove that the woman in the lake was Rachel Timmerman. Now, this brought the case to a whole nother level. Detectives were now looking at a homicide and a kidnapping because Rachel had left her house with her daughter, Shannon, and now she was nowhere to be found. So the FBI was called in. Now, the FBI was called in for two reasons. First, because of the disappearance involved an 11-month-old child. Second, where Rachel's body was found, that is on federal property. That was a national forest in which her body was found. So that falls under federal jurisdiction. Okay. A more thorough search of the woods surrounding Oxford Lake was conducted. Cadaver dogs were brought in and they did indicate that there could be more than one remains in the woods, but they were never able to locate any. The FBI, working in conjunction with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, issued nationwide alerts for Shannon, and missing persons flyers were all over the state. They also established a tip line, but no leads ever came in. It seemed like this was not a stranger who murdered Rachel and had taken Shannon, so they started investigating the people closest to them. They start with the father of Shannon, Rachel's ex-boyfriend, Rick Verhaeg. But he was quickly taken off the list of suspects because he was living in Florida and had an alibi for the day of the disappearance and the subsequent weeks that followed. He also had no motive. 
He was sending child support, and his mother Kim loved being in her granddaughter's life. He had been happy with the situation and the fact that he was in Florida, didn't have the responsibilities of a child, but was still providing for her. So the next person on the suspect list was naturally Marvin Gabrion. He had threatened the life of both Rachel and her daughter, and he benefited most from their disappearances. So it could have been him. I mean, I guess so. I mean, it could be. I mean, come on. Uh, No, I mean, I know. I just think that, I mean, I guess I'm thinking that this guy is intelligent, but he's not because I, I, once again, I go back to the facts right there. That's all I need to know, right? (laughs) Yeah, the facts. The The facts facts and the facts. The facts and the facts. (laughs) Um, I think when, even if you look at the Wayne Davis situation, I mean, come on, how obvious do you got to be? You're with the guy the day before his court appearance. He disappears the next day. And then two weeks later, you're selling his stuff. Well, this see, isn't a mastermind here. No, no, no. It's just a guy I, that yeah. thinks he can get away with it. Well, I think that when the Wayne Davis situation, I would think that he has that he did that and he probably killed him. Right. Yeah. But as far as her, I'm, I'm probably, but I'm just, I'm not sold yet. I don't know. But the Wayne hey, Davis thing, good. Keep for your sure, mind open. Wayne Davis, for sure, I think he had some sort of involvement, but I don't know about this because it just seems a little too obvious, too obvious. Yeah. I just wouldn't want more heat on myself if I'm on trial. Yeah. You're also not someone that would do that. Right. That's true. <laughs> so the FBI was able to determine that a man with the last name of Gabrion was renting a home in the community of Altona. Now, this is a predominantly Amish community, so it appeared to them that Gabrion had chosen to go out there because he wanted to lay low. On July 12th, the detectives went to the house. No one was answering the door, so they were unable to get in. However, what they learned from the outside would be enough to get them a warrant for next time. Despite it being in the middle of summer, and temperatures in the 90s, there was smoke coming out of the chimney for the house. Someone was inside, and someone was burning something. And around the property, they found cinder blocks. Cinder blocks that had been spray-painted red. Uh Uh-oh. First clue? Yes. So the FBI, although they couldn't get inside Gabrion's house... They didn't want this trip to be a waste, so they decided to talk to the neighbors of Marvin Gabrion. The neighbors stated that they had not seen him in weeks, but they thought that he was held up in the house, or someone was. They also said that there was a transient handyman in town that they knew well because he helped everyone out. He was a young kid. He was always really polite. Well, Gabriel had hired him to do some work at his house, and the two appeared to have become very close, like he was over every day. But he had disappeared for the past few weeks, like they hadn't seen him around. No one reported this, though, because they didn't really know him, and he could have just moved on or stopped being friends with Gabriel. So nobody called the police about this disappearance of a random handyman the agents asked the residents for the name of this missing man and they told them 
that his name was John Weeks. Oh my God. So is he using another alias? I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Well, John Weeks was not a transient, as the residents believed him to be. He actually lived in the next town over and had a girlfriend. So they went to talk to her. She confirmed what the others had said. She had not seen her boyfriend in two weeks. When she was shown a picture of Marvin Gabrion, she confirmed that that was the same man that John had been working for and had become good friends with in a very short amount of time. She said, though, that she did not know him as Marvin. She knew him as Lance. So he had told John Weeks and his girlfriend that his name was Lance Gabrion. Oh, okay. All right. I'm glad you could just clear that up for me because there's so many names being thrown right now. I know, now. I know. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but remember, John Weeks was the person who was speaking to Rachel. Yes. So here's this connection here. All right. So she said the reason that she did not report John missing was because um, he had told her that he and Lance were making a drive to Texas to buy a large amount of pot. So she had no way to reach him, and she thought that they had been gone for a while, but what are you going to say? I think my boyfriend went missing on his pot run, so she was waiting it out. Okay, I can understand that, I guess. She did say that she didn't like Lance, or the way that her boyfriend acted like a puppy around him trying to make him happy, and doing his bidding. Like one time, she caught John on the phone with a girl. Her name was Rachel. Okay, here's the connection. When she confronted him about talking on the phone to another girl, he said, it's not like that. I'm not cheating on you. I'm doing a favor for Lance. Okay. Okay, so Gabriel's using... John Weeks. John to draw her out. Right. Yep. Well, while the FBI had been at the house, they had taken samples of the cinder block. When it was tested against the cinder block that was found chained to Rachel's body, they found it to be a match. This got them the warrant they needed to search Gabrion's home. He was still missing when they went back, but they were shocked at the sight they saw. Members of the Gabrion family were at the house. They had backed a pickup truck into his garage and were taking things out and loading them into the truck. They were helping him dispose of evidence. The whole family? A few members of the family. What what are you guys doing? (laughs) I I just don't know. Oh my God. The special agents with the FBI were like, um, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, like, step away from the area, please. <laughs> they made them put everything back that they had loaded into the truck, and they made them put each item back in the room that they had found it in. It was then that the FBI entered the premises to carry out the search warrant. Inside, they found that Gabrion was a big fan of duct tape. He used it for everything. He even hung his curtains up with duct tape. Oh, wow. Is that, that must be the new method. I have not seen that on HGTV. No. They also found cans of red spray paint that had been used to mark up the cinder blocks. It would later be connected. 
They found keys to open padlocks, the same kind of padlocks that chained Rachel's body to the blocks, and a book entitled The Perfect Victim, The Undertaker's Guide to Murder. And this is a story of a sexual predator who kidnapped a woman and held her captive as a sex slave. Wow, that's uh, some good reading material. Yeah. So this is all circumstantial, of course, right? None of these pieces of evidence would ever hold up as physical evidence, but it's all damning. They knew that he had killed Rachel and he potentially killed two other men. Right? Wayne Davis and John Weeks are missing, and they still don't know what had happened to 11-month-old Shannon. They needed to find him. When Gabrion's family was questioned, they would not reveal where he was located. What they do learn from them, though, after a lot of pushing, was that he went by several other aliases. He had made his living as a scam artist taking out insurance policies in other people's names, buying and selling properties at higher prices when he knew the properties were condemned. And he was violent. Very violent. When something didn't go his way or he didn't get what he wanted, he would lash out. So from all of these signs, it was apparent that Marvin Gabrion is this master manipulator. And other males seem to listen to him or he's able to manipulate people. I think he he knows how to find victims, right? Because that's what we've seen continuously in this case. Wayne Davis allowed him, like got out of the car, even though he knew Rachel and cared about her. He backed down from testifying and posted bail for him. John Weeks easily fell under his spell and was now missing. And let's not forget about his nephew, who not only got out of the car that night, refused to testify against him, and then was later helping depose of evidence. Yeah, the, the, it's so crazy how, what the, the, the amount power. of... Yeah, the power and the amount of control that he's able to kind of just like push around on people. It's it's weird. It, it almost makes you think, does... Does he have something over all these people or is it just his ability to just like control them? I don't know. Or like persuade them to do stuff. I think it's his presence. I think he's a very violent person. And I think um, he makes people be really scared of him. I mean, this is something that's really evident. Wow. It's pretty crazy. But he has to also have a charming factor as well. Yeah. I mean, he must have. So upon further investigation, the FBI was able to determine that the house that Gabrion had been staying in was not rented legally. In fact, the person that owned that house was a man named Robert Allen, a man who was known to have a drug problem and be a little transient himself at times. When the FBI contacted Allen's family to try and talk to him about his tenant, the family stated that no one had seen Robert since 1995. So at this point, was it 97, 98? Yeah, 97, almost 98. So he'd been missing for two years. They hadn't reported him missing because they assumed that he had kind of just moved on because he didn't move frequently. 
and his social security checks were being cashed. So they figured he was okay. He just moved on and he did fall out of touch with them for years at a time. So this wasn't something that was odd. Well, his social security checks were being cashed, but they were being cashed by Marvin Gabrion for two years. Are you serious? Yes. Yeah, he probably he probably wound up killing him too. Right. At this point, he's now connected to four missing persons cases and one murder. That's insane. Five people. Wow. So next, they questioned the neighbors again, hoping that someone saw something the night of the murder. One of his neighbors happened to be up at 3 a.m. And he was getting ready for work. This is the night of Rachel's date or early the next morning, however you want to put it. Um, He said that he saw Gabriel grinding something off of an aluminum rowboat. And then he put chains and three cement blocks within the boat. And then he was towing it behind him. That's That's so incriminating. Uh, It really is. (laughs) It's like he is so brazen about all of the crimes that he commits. Well, I think it goes back to what you said. I just think that he th- he thinks he could just get away with anything. I think that he thinks he's an expert at witness intimidation or just intimidation in general. And he thinks that people are not going to tell on him because as we will find later that that has been always what has happened. So when this information gets out about Gabrion being on the run, a former landlord reaches out to the FBI and stated that when Gabriel had moved out of his building, he had left behind a collection of pictures from catalogs. And these were pictures of children modeling bathing suits and underwear for like JCPenney and like Kmart catalogs. The like clippings you said? Yeah. You're like, it's mm-hmm. weird. Now, this isn't the last we're going to hear from this landlord. He's got a pretty nuts story to tell later, too. So on July 18th, a member of Gabrion's family was feeling remorseful about not letting investigators know where he could be. This family member is Gabrion's nephew, Mike, who had a lot to be guilty about. So he let them know that the last time he had heard from Gabrion, he was staying at a campground around Hungerford Lake. The entire grounds around the lake were searched, but his camp area had been cleaned out. He had moved on. But he did leave some things behind at the campground. A hair barrette that had been Rachel's, as confirmed by her family, a baby bottle, and a disposable diaper which gave everyone hope working the case that maybe Shannon was still alive. Wouldn't that be something? I want her to be alive. I mean, obviously I know the outcome of this case, but knowing his personality, I can't see him taking care of a child. That's true. Unless he's willing to like sell the child, which, which yes, that is a very strong possibility. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I, I'm not going to throw it past him. I mean, this is something, I mean, this guy really doesn't have, uh, like a moral compass at all. So yes, if it's for money, he would take care of the child. 100%. I agree with that. So Gabriel eluded the FBI for another three months 
until they received an anonymous tip from someone that Gabron was working with. The man was running a scam in partnership with Gabrion, and he was sending him money to a P.O. box in upstate New York. He explained that every other Tuesday he sent him money. So the next time Gabrion was scheduled to collect that money, on October 14, 1997, they staked out the post office. Just past 11 a.m., Marvin Gabrion approached the post office. They waited for him to collect the cash, and then they moved in. He tried to make a run for it, but was quickly caught by the agents. Once arrested, Gabrion refused to talk to anyone but his attorney, unless he was denying the fact that he was involved in anything. However, once in jail, he began writing letters to the local papers, witnesses trying to intimidate them, and to Rachel's family. Again, his only goal was to manipulate and or intimidate them. In a letter to Rachel's mother, he said that it was her fault that her daughter died and that she will have to live with the fact that her daughter was thrown into a lake drowned and when she was dropped in massive air bubbles were coming out of the lake because she was struggling to breathe and fighting her restraints and she would have to live with that for the rest of her life i mean who who's he to write a letter like that right who's i mean you're, you're a monster dude and you probably did it i mean and that's just no he's saying he did do it he, and he's saying but he's saying like it's your fault you put your daughter in that situation well who well Okay. But he's a monster for, for not only did he kill Rachel Timmerman, but now he's torturing her family. What, yeah, with the knowledge of what happened, you know. And he still, still won't say where Shannon is. Now, although it was very difficult, the FBI encouraged the family to write back to him. They thought that maybe they would get information this way, like he would slip up. Shannon's paternal grandmother, Kim, did write back, and she spoke with Gabriel on the phone a few times. She desperately wanted answers about where her granddaughter was. On one occasion, while they were on the phone, she begged him to let her know where Shannon was. Is she in the lake? And he told her, no, she's not in the lake. I know for a fact she's not. However, Inmates that he was with would later come forward and say that they often harassed him about what he had done to the child. And once he had cracked under the pressure and said that he had thrown her in the lake because he didn't know what to do with her. And this was in April of 2001. So one month later, another attempt was made to search Lake Oxford for Shannon. But the lake much like the man that found Rachel's body said, was a mud hole. So in order to properly search it, they had to drain thousands of gallons of water and remove 300 cubic yards of sediment. But still no remains were found. In March of 2002, Marvin Gabrion faced a trial for the murder of Rachel. In this trial, we learn that Gabriel's reign of terror began long before his rape of Rachel. In 1996, he sexually assaulted the wife of a friend. He grabbed her crotch and breasts 
and she told him to leave, but he refused to. She went and got the gun that they kept in their house, and it was only then that he left. Months later, he tried to get into bed with his sister-in-law's niece, but she told him to get out or she would scream. The next morning, her dog went missing. She called the police about the two incidents, but later dropped charges after Gabrion called her and told her that if she went through with this, that he would put her body where no one else would ever find it, like he did her dog. Also in 1996, Gabrion rented a room in a seven-bedroom house in Cutlerville, Michigan. Now, this is the same landlord that spoke before about him leaving behind the clippings from the catalog. Okay. Which could be interpreted as child pornography. Yeah. He testified to the fact that one renter complained to to him that Gabrion threatened to kill him over a, a minor dispute. Another renter complained that Gabrion had entered her room and exposed himself to her. And right after he received these complaints, the landlord caught Gabrion looking into the window of a 12-year-old girl, the daughter of another tenant, and he was rubbing his crotch. The landlord told him at that point that he needed to leave. Gabrion refused to leave. Um, he said he was entitled to 60 days notice before eviction. Um, that's when the landlord's wife called the police. In retaliation, Gabrion, before leaving, walked into the woman's kitchen, picked up a knife, and threatened to slit her throat and throw them both into a river. So he, I mean, this, right, like, like this is crazy behavior. And I can't throw anything past him as far as, like, he's good for murder. He's good for, like, uh, everything. He, pretty much everything. Yeah. yeah. It's not even over. It's not, really? it's not done. Okay. In 1997, he was playing cards at a friend's house. He became irate when the man had to pause the game to get medication for his uncle. Gabrion then accused the man of kicking his dog. And the man, having had enough, asked Gabrion to just leave his house. But he did not. He went into the living room and picked up the man's dog and threw the dog at a wall. When the man tried to stop Gabrion, he grabbed him by the throat, pushed him to the floor, and choked him. He then got up and began kicking the man in the ribs. When the man's wife tried to intervene, Gabrion grabbed her by the hair and slammed her head to the ground. He was yelling that he could kill the whole family and no one would know. He began punching the woman in the face. As he did, the couple's 10-year-old son leaped on him to stop him. And he threw the boy across the room and punched him in the head several times. He told them that if they called the police, he would finish what he started. Believing him, they did not call the police. I mean, this guy really... Um, a reign of terror is no other way to put it. Yeah, he really exerts his, like, dominance on people. I I think that he... 
does a really good job of intimidation and manipulation. And that's, and see, like I said earlier, he has gotten away with this. He thought that this rape of Rachel Timmerman, he was going to get away with it. You know? Well, he's been, I mean, anyone would. They've been very successful at getting away with, a, like, literally assaulting people, rape, and everything else. I mean, like... Yeah. Of course he of course he's gonna going to. And I mean listen, he has some sick, sick tendencies. Um once, and this is another neighbor, uh Gabriel shot at a neighbor's house after a, a silly dispute. When the neighbor called the police, Gabriel's home was searched because a shot had come from his second story window. <sighs> I am so sorry I'm telling you guys this. When they searched his home, they found a frog with its legs and arms spread apart, pinned to the floor, and a naked doll next to it in the same position, like spread eagle. On and around the frog and the doll, they found dried and non-dried semen. Oh, my God. He is a very sick man. Very I don't, sick I don't man. even want to know. I know. I don't even want to get into the details of that. Well, let's just move past it. I My stomach still hurts from typing the sentence and just saying it. I told you that wasn't the first sentence wasn't the worst <laughs> yeah. one. He's nothing short of a monster. And you know, when we cover cases and we say, oh, I like he seems to know what he's doing. I wonder if he's ever done this before. In the case of Marvin Gabrion, we know that he's done this before. And his victims only spoke out about what he did to them or their family members after this case came out. You know, and again, this is because of Rachel Timmerman breaking the silence that all his victims, you know, felt they needed to keep up. It was her strength that kind of stopped him, but unfortunately led to her own demise which is so sad yeah and i'm sure that those people that never said anything and maybe found out about this after the fact probably said to themselves like yeah look he wasn't joking when he said he'd come back and finish us if we said something because look at what happened to rachel a hundred percent and yeah you're right their feelings are justified as well and i am sure there are so many other victims out there as well oh yeah I wouldn't doubt it. But there was something else at play here with this trial. Um, Gabriel, when it comes to the murder of Rachel Timmerman, because that is when he gets arrested, that's what he's charged with. They're going to wait for everything else, but they know they can get him on the murder of Rachel Timmerman. So Gabriel is being tried in federal court. This is not Michigan versus Gabriel. This case was United States versus Gabriel. And that's because the crime he was being accused of, the murder of Rachel Timmerman, supposedly took place on federal land because a portion of Oxford Lake, the portion where Rachel's body was found, is a part of the Manistee National Forest. Because this is a federal case, the prosecutors were allowed to seek the death penalty for the crime, even though the death penalty had been abolished in Michigan in 1846. 
Oh, wow. So this is allowed because in 1988, the federal death penalty had been reinstated. Okay, so because it was on federal land, they can charge him federally and put him to death. Correct. Wow. So the main goal of the prosecutors was to prove that the murder took place in the National Forest. And, you know, the jury found that he had killed Rachel there on federal land. And there's many factors that go into this. But like the guy who found the body said, Oxford Lake is a mud hole and there were two separate parts of it. One part of the lake is on federal property and the other is private property. But the land, the lake itself is so filled with sediment and debris um, that there was no way that her body could ever have gotten from the private property part of it and flowed into the federal. So she had to have been murdered within the federal side of Oxford Lake. And we know from what the medical examiner said that she was alive when she was um, thrown off the side, thrown into the lake. Yes. Yeah. Not to mention, that's a good point. I mean, if she has pretty much the waders on her feet, you know, she, wherever he throws her off the side right. of the boat is where she's probably going to end up and not move. Right. And the reason why her body had floated to the surface was because of the gases in the body upon decomposition. Um, and really what kept her in place, they think where she was found was exactly where she was dropped because the cinder blocks actually got caught up in sediment and like plant life from within the lake. Yeah, definitely. Well, the jury found that he had killed Rachel on the federal part, on federal land. So because of that, he was sentenced to death. The first person to ever be sentenced to death in a state that does not allow the death penalty. The first person? The first person. Well, I think it was well-deserved, I guess. And he was the first person to be sentenced to death in the state of Michigan since 1937. Which there was like a, a time when the death penalty was allowed again, but then had gone. Yeah. I think like if anyone's fitting for at least being on death row or whatever you want to call it would be him. This guy's a total monster. I mean, this guy's out of, his, out of his mind. I mean, he really doesn't care who he hurts or what he's doing. It's very sad. So in 2011, Gabrion appealed both the conviction and the sentence. His defense team claimed that the jury should have been told that if he was being tried in state court, the death penalty would not have been on the table. And the concept of reasonable doubt was not clearly explained to them. The conviction was upheld, but the death sentence was overturned. However, in 2013, the sentence appeal was overturned and the death penalty was reinstated. Gabrion tried another appeal in 2018, but that was denied. He currently sits on death row. One detail that I feel can't be ignored was that when he had these people, um, so let's say Rachel Timmerman and Wayne Davis, he forced these victims to write letters. And that's why I think 
he wanted John Weeks to tell Rachel to bring Shannon along because Rachel wrote four letters, two to her family, one to a judge, one to a prosecutor. And I think he wanted the baby there because he said, write these letters or I'm going to hurt her. Okay, that's what you think? That's what I think is happening. I don't know what he did to Shannon. The theories are he could have sold her to someone. And if that is a possibility in my mind, I would like to think a family who really wanted a child versus the other horrific possibilities that are out there. Um, Or he could have killed her. Yeah. Um, after, you know, he had gotten what he wanted. It's just the, we don't know what happened to those people, you know? Alan, the guy who owned the house, John Weeks, Wayne Davis, Rachel, we know was murdered, but then we also don't know what happened to Shannon. It's just so sad. Yeah, it is. And he took, you know, that's a lot of people that we're mentioning here. So I'm curious, I'm curious as to what he did with the other people. Because there's no way those people aren't dead. Well, yeah, they are. Because they're, uh, you got to think, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, go for it. But you got to think too, like, they're all loose ends. Yes. They are all loose ends in his game and his plan. So in order for him to succeed, they need to be taken out. And if you killed Rachel... He had to have killed others. Well, I think that he killed Alan for the social security and the house. Right. That's what I think he was doing there. Um, This was done strategically in the mind of the prosecutors. First of all, all of the evidence that he killed those other people, it's purely circumstantial. There was physical evidence relating to the murder of Rachel and Rachel's murder had occurred on federal land. So they knew they could seek the death penalty in that case. Um, I think they are trying to work to find evidence that would physically connect him to the disappearance of the four other people. It's something that investigators are still working to try and do to get some kind of answers and justice for families of the other people, um, especially Shannon and, and be able to lay all of their loved ones to rest. But that's why they wanted to to charge him with Rachel's first. The others are purely circumstantial, but it's so obvious that it was him. In the same way that it's obvious it was him with Rachel. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. The question was never, did he do it? It was where he did it. Right. And what are the, like all his steps leading to all their disappearances Correct. and their murder? Um, I have to tell you, you always seem to amaze me because I had no idea about this case. Never heard about it before. I've, and it's so fascinating about him being the first person to be sentenced to death in a state that doesn't allow the death penalty. This Once again, this was a good one. I liked it Thanks, a lot. John. I do want to note that Rachel's father wrote a book about these murders um, and the fact that his granddaughter's body is still missing um, and the effect that that had on their family. So the book that he wrote is entitled The Color of Night, and it was written in 2011. We're going to put a link to it in um, the show notes, just so, you know, if you're interested further in the case. But I, I want to leave everyone with the idea of how strong Rachel Timmerman 
was in trying to escape, you know, the cycle that of abuse and neglect that she had been brought up in and how brave she was in doing that, but also coming forward with her attack and ending this reign of terror that this monster had over this county. Yeah, you're right. So I just wanted to end it on that versus him, you know. I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> All right, guys, we hope that you enjoyed the case and we can't wait to hear what you think about it. Um, again, if you have stories for us, please, please, please send them in. We want as many as possible. We love making that episode great. And we will see you again in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.